Well, children, children, who knows what a mirror is? Children, who knows what a mirror is? I know, very challenging question. Okay, what's a mirror do? Great. What's a mirror do? That's right. So you can, do, like, comb your beard in the morning, eh? Are you guys all do that? You know, you stand in front of the mirror in the morning and brush your beard out? You don't have, oh, you're missing out on life. Yeah, what do you do with a mirror? See if you look cool. That's right. A hundred percent. That's what I always do, but it's really hard. It never seems to work. doesn't matter how many times I look in the mirror, I still don't look cool. But we use it for brushing our teeth and we can see ourselves, right? Or you can be one of those cool people and use your phone to do it. You know, put it on selfie cam and be like, yeah, and comb your hair. As you walk down the road, put your comb out of your pocket. You know, it's class. Good to go. Mirrors are very helpful. They help you. They reflect you so that you know what you look like. Well, do you know there's other types of reflectors? When you drive down the road, or well, you guys don't drive down the road, do you? When your mum or dad drives down the road and you're sitting in the car seat, there are these things called cat eyes. Weird name, eh? They're not actual cat eyes, but they're called cat eyes, and they're stuck on the road, and when your parents drive, they reflect the light back at you. Have you seen those things on the road? They sort of light up when you're driving. Have a look to the next time you're out in the car in the evening. Have a look ahead of you, and you'll see these little lights on the road. They're actually just reflectors. They bounce the light back to you. But there's another type of reflector, and that's a human being. A reflector on a bike. That's right. Great job. But we're also reflectors as human beings because we're made in the image of God. And so God makes us in his image that we might reflect his glory. So it's a little bit like God's glory comes down from heaven and hits us and bounces off us everywhere. But there's another type of reflection that we're going to be thinking about tonight, and that's you guys. You guys are reflectors of your mum and dad. You see, when you see a child doing something, you learn something about their parents. And in our Bible passage today, we're thinking about elders and the qualification for elders. And one of the ways we can figure out if someone is good to be an elder, if a father would make a good elder, is we go and we look at his children. We say, well, what does his children act like? And we see if they're super naughty and bad and rebellious. We see if they love the Lord. We see if they walk like a Christian, if they follow in their father's footsteps. We're going to be learning about that today. So you guys actually have a really important job, not just to reflect God, but also to reflect your parents well. Because the way you act is going to tell people a lot about your parents. So it's really important that we live well. But that's true for all of us, isn't it? Even the old people. They have to live well for the sake of God's glory, don't they? So let's pray and we'll ask God to help us do that because it's not easy. Father in heaven, we thank you for your glory, which is displayed among your people and your image bearers. And Lord, all of us are children. Even if we're just old children, we all have parents that we reflect. And so we pray that you would help every single one of us to live in such a way that we give honor and respect to our parents. Help these children to do that, Lord, and help us as parents to raise them in a way that would enable them to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we're turning through to the book of Titus today. Titus chapter 1. 
And we're picking up, and we're going to be looking at just the second half of verse 6. If you're wondering why we're going backwards, it's not because we're moving so slowly that we've started going backwards in the Bible now, uh, but we missed, we skipped over the second half of verse 6, and I said that we would come back to it. And then two weeks ago, I bailed ship because I wasn't ready, and now we're finally making it back there. And we pray that the Lord might bless it to us. But to put it in its context, we'll read verse 5 of chapter 1 through to verse 9. That was Titus chapter 1 picking up at verse 5. And this is God's holy word for you this day. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. And may God bless it to us. And before we consider it, let's come to him in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a silent God like the idols of this world. That, Lord, you are not dumb and deaf like the statues made by men, but you speak and you hear and you act. And yet, Lord, we know that we are dull of hearing at times. And, Lord, we know at times that we struggle to understand your word. And so we pray that... This morning, you would speak to us and that you would help us to understand, but not just to understand, Lord, but to put it into practice, that we wouldn't be like the man in James who looks into a mirror and forgets what his face, but Lord, we would go and we would be not just hearers, but doers of your word. Lord, help me to speak clearly to your people, and we pray that your word was, would come with authority and power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The other day I was looking at an, an article about sort of historical and famous paintings, some older, some younger, and one of them was Salvador Dali's Swans Reflecting Elephants. If you've ever seen this, it's quite an interesting painting. And in the center, there's some beautiful swans. And with each of the pieces of artwork, the person that wrote the article would then explain. And all of them were pieces that had more than what you would first think. 
And so, you know, me being clearly an expert in art, which I've exhibited here many times in children's talks, I looked at this and saw some swans and I was like, well, it's pretty cool. And then I started reading the article and they're like, but do you notice that in the water you see elephants? And I'm like, oh, I hadn't noticed that. That's pretty cool. And then they're like, and did you notice that to the left there's actually a man and, and actually the cloud reflects the shape of the man? And on and on, this article went pointing out more and more and more stuff. You know, and this piece of artwork, which when I first looked at it, seemed simple and straightforward and a lovely painting, all of a sudden became more and more and more complex. And the longer I read this article, the more amazed I became with the depth of this passage. Not passage, this piece of artwork. But passages can be like that. Sometimes you read a passage and you think to yourself, well, that's really simple. And then someone comes along and says, but did you consider? And you go, oh. Now, I know some of us had this while listening to Ian Smith last weekend, didn't we? I had it when he was talking about uh, the, the rock. And Ian, and Ian says, oh, and did you notice that God is standing on the rock? And I'm like, how have I never seen that before? I've read this passage like just 20 times, and I've never noticed that God's standing on the rock. I'm like, that's so cool. And we probably all had moments like that last weekend who were here. But sometimes it works a little bit differently. You come to a passage which you think is really simple, like Titus chapter 1, verse 6, and then you stop and start asking questions. And then all of a sudden, you realize maybe it's not so simple. And then all of a sudden you discover when you turn to the commentaries that it's most definitely not that simple because everyone's arguing about it. And then if you happen to be part of a pastor's chat group, you put the question up in the pastor's chat group and discover everyone else is just as confused as you are. And then you have to preach on it. And you find yourself in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, which says, quite simply, his children are believers or having children that believe, or having believing children who are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, you might think to yourself, Logan, that's what's the fuss? It's really straightforward, right? If you want to be an elder, your children have to believe. And if you want to be an elder, your children need to make sure that they're not doing debauchery or insubordination. But have you considered what age the children are that he's speaking about? That the word gives you no indication in the Greek. You know, we assume little children, don't we? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you assume older children. But whoever these children are, they have to be old enough to be liable to the charge of debauchery, which isn't a five-year-old, right? Paul could have used a word for little child, or he could have used a child for a, a word for a young adult, but he uses a word which is generic, generic and covers everything. Not only that, if they're young, how can they do debauchery? And if they're old, how can the father be liable? I mean, if my children are grown up, why is it my fault? Not only that, do we, as you might see a footnote, do we translate believe as believe or be faithful? Because it can be either. And if it's believed, does that mean Dwayne is excluded because his children haven't grown up yet? 
And if it's faithful, well, what sort of faithful? Is it faithful to their dad? Or is it faithful to God? Or is it faithful to the covenantal expectations? Or is it just faithful in general? So all of a sudden you start asking these questions and you start scratching your head and you're thinking to yourself, maybe it's not so simple. Maybe it's not so easy. And, and then you start asking yourself the question, well, how do we take this thing which is a general principle and then apply it specifically when we get really weird situations? Like, what do you do when you're a missionary in Papua New Guinea and someone gets converted and they have two wives and they're a really, really godly man who would make a fantastic elder? Does he put a wife away? Well, if he does that, she now has no one to look after her. You're going to kick her out of the village? And what do you do with the children? And all of a sudden, it starts getting very complicated, doesn't it? So what do we do with the qualification about believing children? Well, let's dig into it and see if we can explain and figure out what's going on here first. It's important for us to recognize, and this might be painstakingly obvious, but it's very important for us to begin by realizing that this is a qualification for a father and not a qualification for children. I know that seems like an obvious thing to say, but what, where does your mind immediately go when someone says to you, elders' children must X? You start thinking about the children, don't you? And you start pondering on the children. But the qualification is for the father. Remember, because Titus is going to take these qualifications and he's going to go into the church and he's going to look at the dads and the men of the church and he's going to find elders. So firstly, this is a qualification for the man and not the child. But how do we interpret the actual words themselves? As I said, the, the, the word for the age of the children is kind of like a miscellaneous. You might, you might translate it instead. It's not the same word, but you could translate it maybe an offspring or a descendant in the sense of like a generic someone that's come down from a dad. Could be a young child, could be an older child. But what about belief or faithful? Because that's quite different, isn't it? The, the, the word can be used for either. So the word is pista, and you can use it to say belief, believing, or faithful, like the act of being faithful to something. However, when you go across the New Testament, almost every time this word is used, it's used either of believing or a faithful believer. Even if the word believer is not there, the context is a believing person who is acting faithfully or called to act faithfully. So either way, even if you translate this as faithful, the idea is still the child's a believer. Okay, So we don't have the out clause, which some people use. One of my pastoral friends said, oh, it's easy. It's just faithful to dads, and it doesn't matter if they're pagans or not. And so that's an easy way to get out of all of the difficulties, right? Except for the word almost exclusively is a reference to a believing person. 
Now that's going to raise for you a whole bunch of questions in your mind and you just have to hold on to those and Lord willing, we will get back to those. But what, what is this debauchery and rebellion or insubordination? The two words are very graphic in the Greek. One, one is you could translate and some of the other Bibles use it as dissipation or a pouring out of your resources in a godless living. In fact, it's the very word used to describe the prodigal son when he goes off into the faraway country. You remember that story? Goes into the faraway country and he commits debauchery. He uses his resources in a wasteful way upon sin. So we're clearly not talking about little children, are we? What about this insubordination? Well, it's, it's the sort of word that you would use to describe an animal who hasn't been trained or tamed. And I'm sure you've all seen children like that in your lifetime before. Maybe not among friends or family, but maybe out in the supermarket. It's someone who doesn't respect authority. You know, the ones who throw things at police cars when they drive past. So we're talking about a person who is not believing nor living faithfully, if you take it that way, and is living a wild, godless life. And Paul says, if that's what your child is, you are excluded. You are disqualified from becoming an elder. Now, the the historical context of this command is actually really significant and really, I think, helps us begin to unpack what's going on here. Because when we think about these sorts of commands, obviously, we think about them as it relates to us in our church situation, right? And for most of us, a command like this, if you're a dad, means what? You're thinking about how you're raising up your little children, and you're thinking about what they're doing as they're growing and becoming older and as they're becoming teenagers. That's not the context of Titus, is it? Remember what the island of Crete's like? We've talked about it a few times. It's like a pagan wasteland, right? I said to you a few Sundays ago that it's like the, the epitome of sinful nature is found in Crete. And the Gospels come there, and it's worked its way out and, bring, and brought with it incredible transformation in the community, right? Now, can you imagine what it would be like to walk into a church in Crete? When you go up to a someone and you say to them, how long have you been a believer? No one says to you, oh, well, I've always been a believer, and my parents were believers, and my grandparents were believers. Every single person says to you, well, actually, I was a pagan worshiper just last year or two years ago or three years ago. I was actually a priest sacrificing bulls on the altar to said God. I only understand paganism. I'm still trying to figure out how this one God thing even works. And Titus goes into that context with this qualification and says, hey guys, anyone whose children look like this need to be excluded. Why does Paul say that? Because there's a whole bunch of ex-pagans whose children 
are still pagans, right? I mean, just because dad or mum has become a believer doesn't mean all of the children have instantaneously accepted the Lord, right? These things take time. It takes time for the gospel to work its way out in the home. Now, we know that that is still going to have implication for us. Just because the historical context is different doesn't mean it's no longer applicable, but it helps us understand why Paul is putting this qualification in place. Paul is saying, Titus, of all those new pagan converts, if any of them have not gone home and brought the gospel to bear upon their family in such a way that there has been gospel fruit, don't make them an elder. Now, why does that make sense? Because an elder's job is to take the gospel into the community the church and the world, and to live it out and to teach people to walk in the way of the Lord, right? That's their calling. And so if they have not been able to or have not done that in their home, why would you ask them to do it in the church? And so from a historical perspective, this makes complete logical sense. Because could you imagine if you're sitting in their shoes and your elder comes for his elder visit, and he's come to you with the gospel to minister to you with the gospel. And just yesterday, you saw his children at the orgy house offering their pagan sacrifices. What would you be thinking to yourself as he's teaching you how to raise up your family to walk with the Lord? How to live out the gospel in the community? You'd be going, hmm, there are some disconnects here, right? You see, the, the qualification is based upon the successful fruit of the elder doing his job at home. We look for fruit within the home first. And, and that, brothers and sisters, helps us to apply this directly to a covenantal situation, right? What does Paul, if you were to take that historical context and to apply it to our situation where the majority of us are not pagan converts, right? I mean, there's some of you are. We were all born in sin, but many of us were raised up in the church. Many of us have just always known the Lord, and we're raising our children to always know the Lord. How would this apply to us? Exactly the same way. We look to the home of the elder in order to see if there is gospel fruit that matches the work that the elder is meant to be doing. What would that gospel fruit look like? Well, what, what would a father do with his children? He would bring them forward and he would have them welcomed into the covenant, right? What, what would he do? He would be disciplining them well. He would be training them up in the fear of the Lord. He would be training his children to walk in keeping with the covenantal obligations. 
He would be doing the same thing that we see playing out all the way through the Old Testament as well. When his children rebel, he would discipline them so that they're not living rebellious lives. And if his children become debaucherous, he would be doing the same thing that's always been done. They would be brought before the church to be disciplined. You see, the qualification is, what is the father doing? Is the, is the, the work of the father bearing fruit in the lives of his children? Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, you know, is, is, is this right? Is this the correct application? Do we understand it that way? Do we see this anywhere else? And interestingly, we see this very strongly, and we saw it very strongly when we went through Samuel. I wonder if the passage comes to your mind. Do you remember the dad who had some rebellious children? Eli, right? What's the story of Eli? Well, rather than me paraphrasing it, let's read it. Turn to First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 2. The lovely Hannah has just uh, received and had her prayer answered. And she's just delivered the godly son, right? Samuel, the, the beautiful image of an incredibly godly son dropped off to the temple to serve the Lord. He's like the epitome of what a, a godly descendant looks like. And then the camera instantly pans to the opposite in chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel, again, here's contrast, Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah. And his wife, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Now, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will meditate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him? Out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go out and in before me, my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me, put me in one of the priest's places that I might eat a morsel of bread. And in chapter four, we won't read it, but in chapter four, we find that conclusion when the Philistines ark is captured, don't we? And the whole Father and sons, they all perish. They are cut off. Eli was a servant of the Lord, right? He, he was a priest, but let's term him an elder just for case study. He was an elder with children, covenantal children, that he ought to have brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord to walk in belief and faithfulness, not in debauchery or insubordination. And as they grew up, they turned their heart away from the Lord and they devoted themselves to debauchery and to insubordination and they did not believe 
And Eli was disqualified, right? Now, now you might have a whole bunch of questions like, why is it his fault? What could he have done? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But just accept simply that that's the example of Scripture, right? What should Eli have done? He should have disciplined his children in accordance with the law. Deuteronomy 20, I think it is, or 21, which says, if a child is rebellious and effectively refuses to do anything and listen to his parents, you take him to the city and you take him to the city gate and you take him outside and you stone him to death. That was what the law required of a parent whose child was insubordinate and debaucherous. Now, granted, brothers and sisters, we don't have stoning anymore, right? But how might that exact situation play out in our context? I know it's not nice to say. And I know some of you find this very difficult, and some of you have children that don't walk with the Lord, and it's hard. And I totally get that. And I know there's a million different cases. But what does that cutting off look like in the church of Christ? It's excommunication, right? It's the removal of a sinner who refuses to repent and acknowledge the Lord. So how do we, how do we apply a situation like this? How do we actually deal with the qualification of this when you've got so many different examples? You know, what do you do if you've got a dad who's a great dad and he's got 15 children and just one of them rebels? Or what do you do if there's a great dad who has three children and just one of them rebels? What if he's just got one kid and he's done everything? You know, it gets complicated, right? This is why it's so important that we don't have a law that applies this. But we have God-given elders and ministers of the gospel, right? You see, every one of these qualifications, not just this one, can be hard to apply. What do, you do, what do you do if one of your elders all of a sudden becomes self-willed? Which is a qualification. You're not allowed to be self-willed. Does he, is he instantaneously disqualified forever for the rest of his life? Well, it's really going to depend what it looks like, right? And so with every case, we apply the gospel of God's grace and the discipline of the church to the situation in light of the general principle. We take the general principle and with God-fearing wisdom and grace, we apply it to the specific situation with much prayer, seeking to honor the Lord and do what's right. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And that's why we can't just say, well, if anyone ever has a child that's not a believer, then they're cooked. And we can't say, well, it clearly never means that, right? Why would God do this? Have you ever asked that question? Why this qualification? I can't even save my children, right? Only God can save my children. I can do everything I can to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I can do everything I can to set the gospel before them in life and in word. But I can't save them. So why does God set this qualification for eldership? 
Let me suggest to you just a few things. Firstly, this is an amazing gift to fathers. Why? This is a gracious gift from God to fathers because if, if you're not yet an elder and one of your children is, is struggling or is walking away from the Lord, I mean, what a gift for God to say to you, don't worry about the church, just give yourself to your children, give yourself to your family. Or, or if you are an elder and one of your children goes way off the rails, what a gift for God to be able to say, my child, my son, stand down and take a break and go and sort your house out. And so you can step back from that role and you could go and invest yourself in your children so that the children would be brought back to the Lord, right? This is actually a gracious provision to men and fathers. Another reason is that, as I said earlier, your children, children will either be a blessing or a hindrance in ministry. I don't mean like how much are they going to support you. I mean as like an example, right? Like if your children are maniacs, how are you going to counsel people to raise their children? I mean, if your child is just wild and ignores everybody on the face of the planet and you go sit with a young family to teach them how to raise their children, what are they going to think? Are you insane? I've seen your child. Why would I take any of your advice? I mean, you don't go to the, to the person in the supermarket whose kid's bouncing off the walls and throwing stuff around the supermarket and you go, can you teach me how to discipline my children? You don't do that, do you? You, you find the godly mother or the godly father who's done an amazing job with children. You go to them, what, your children are pretty good. I wouldn't mind my kids turning out like your kids. Let's have a chat. Another thing is that throughout the scriptures consistently and always, God's plan works out through families, right? He comes to Adam and he establishes the covenant with the family. He comes to Noah and he establishes it with the family. Over and over and over again, it's to you and your offspring, you and your offspring, the promises to you and your children. So if this promise is you and your children over and over and over again, and our children forsake the promise, what does that declare to the world? Do you see the testimony here? The church's testimony, one of the strongest testimonies for the church of Jesus Christ is generational Christianity. Don't listen to those people that say to you, oh, you guys just think you're going to breed evangelism. You know, evangelism by breeding. Just have more children and grow the church. It's we care about new conversions. Don't listen to that nonsense. The power of our testimony at Covenant is the fact that people walk through this door and see myriads of people who continue to walk with the Lord, children who keep the promise, who hold on to the promise of God. It's a glorious testimony. If our children are forsaking the faith, what does that tell the world? It's not worth having. This is why liberal churches die, right? Because all the children go, well, my parents don't even believe in this stuff, so why would I believe in it? And anyone that walks in the door looks around and goes, there's nothing but 90-year-old people who don't even believe their Bible. 
but when they come in and see a thriving community of faith of all ages, praising and clinging to the promise, what a testimony. Not only that, but as I think it's Pierre Marcel puts it, that the family is the seedbed of election. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? The family is the seedbed of election. In other words, it's the primary place that election actually works its way out. Now, I, I know we're tempted to think it's all about brand new conversions from unsaved peoples, and praise the Lord, I want as many of them as we can, right? But if you look around this room and you see all of the people in this room that have grown up in the church, every single one of them is a conversion. Every single one of them is a regenerated person born into the kingdom of heaven. And so it's incumbent upon the elder to labor in these things. So, so how, does this, how does this apply other than you know, the, the onerous task of elders having to apply this stuff as a qualification? How does this apply to you in your life? Brothers and sisters, if, if you understand the way God views your children, and the premium that God puts on children, I mean, just take a couple of passages. When the Israelites are sacrificing their children to Molech, God comes to them in Ezekiel and he says to them, how could you sacrifice my children to Molech? He doesn't say your children. He says my children. You remember the words of Jesus? If you lead one of these little ones into sin, you are better off tying a millstone around your neck and jumping in the sea. That's the way God views our little ones. How much more ought we to view them that preciously and devote ourselves to seeing them raised up to know the Lord, right? I'm not talking about some weird pedocentric model where it's all about what the children want. No, you know full well that godly parenting most of the time is the opposite of what our children want. But devoting yourself, not just as a father, but as a mother, not just as a father and a mother, but as a covenantal community, right? I cannot raise my children on my own. I need you. We need you. This is why every time a baptism happens, what do you do? You stand up and you say, I promise before the Lord that I will pray for this child and work for this child and minister to this child. How are we doing on that promise? You see, these elders need your help. If they're going to be qualified, they need your help to raise their children. And so we need to labor as a church, and we need to labor as fathers, and we need to labor as mothers to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they might love the Lord, that they might walk faithfully by the Lord, so that we might have... Many men that we can look at and say, look at his family. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. You know, brothers and sisters, I know it's not easy. And I know it's tiring. 
But, but Douglas Milne, Douglas Milne was right when he said, the failure of a man to produce believing children does not suggest that he is capable of exemplary leadership, discipline, and the ability to pass on the faith to others. If a man cannot succeed in the more intimate circle of the family, he will not succeed with the more stringent relationships of the household of God. Isn't that true? If, if, if I can't succeed with the gospel in my home, what hope do I think I have in the church, which is way harder? And so may the Lord, by his grace, himself raise up our children, and may he use you and me and all of us and by his grace, may he restore wandering children. And may we play the part in seeing them restored. And may he be glorified in a church which is saturated with children that love the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for passages that are challenging at times. And at the same time, clear, and we recognize that a lot of the times they're challenging because of our, our slowness of mind or heart. And so we pray that, Lord, at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And we ask that you would give us clarity. We ask that you would raise up godly children, godly parents, that you would give us success with our children that our children might be a living testimony to parents and also to a covenantal community, that, Lord, the elderly might support and encourage and be grandparents to all of the children in this church, that the singles might spur them on through deed and word and prayer, that, Lord, each and every one of us would fulfill our vows and be faithful to see children raised up and walking consistently in the faith that, Lord, you would protect our young ones who are bombarded with temptation and threats from every side. That, Lord, you would help us to be faithful in our discipline as parents and as a church. That we would call our people back to faithfulness and we would discipline those who are off the track, that they might be restored that they might be sound. Lord, none of these things are easy. We pray that you'd give us grace and wisdom as we apply this qualification in our church and that you would raise up many elders in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.